Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Lauren Welter. Dr. Welter is a licensed psychologist and the owner of Prairie Home Wellness and Counseling in rural Iowa. Lauren grew up in Iowa and briefly became a Wall Street investment banker before returning to the state and becoming a psychologist and farm wife. She is a graduate of the University of Iowa's Counseling Psychology Program and completed her internship at the Iowa City Veterans Affairs Hospital. Lauren particularly enjoys working with survivors of all types of trauma. On the personal side, she has four young children she is usually chasing after and enjoys running yoga and coffee and dinner dates with friends when she can. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. So excited. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sam. It's great to see you again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Likewise. Yeah, but before we started recording, we were trying to count the years since we last saw each other. Um, I'm I'm not sure, but 10 years, it, it sounds like that could Maybe be the eight. case. I think 10, let's let's call it eight, but <laughs> but it, it may, might be a decade. So either way, it's great to see you after all this time. Today, we're we're going to be focusing on rural mental health needs. And more specifically, looking at ranchers and farmers, too, because of your work and um, what you've noticed within that community, especially. So while people in rural parts of America don't necessarily suffer from greater mental health concerns, at least based on the research I was reading, and Lauren, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like one of the biggest issues I've I've known, even when I went to school in a more rural state, in a more rural area, we were talking about accessibility and affordability of care being a huge, huge problem. And here now in Wisconsin, where I'm at, I know that there are some people that drive like 45 minutes, and that's if they have a car, mind you, drive 45 minutes to receive like basic medical care. And that's not even considering psychological services. And so I want to have a big open-ended question to start. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about, you know, rural mental health needs in general. And then as you've kind of specialized and worked within this community, what do we need to know about farmers and ranchers and what their needs are, their strengths, challenges? So it's a big question, I know. Yeah, yeah. Let's see where to start and how to break it down. I think to some degree, people are people. And so people that I've worked with in rural practice come to me with many of the same concerns and ultimately diagnoses as you would get in other settings. But we also really need to understand that there is a unique culture and of course subcultures that I believe practitioners really need to understand. So mm -hmm. if I could frame this a little bit with a bit of my own story, um, I did not grow up in a rural community. So I grew up mm -hmm. in Iowa, but I lived in, in Iowa City, which is a university town. and um, really knew nothing about rural culture, rural mm -hmm. people, the economics, the day-to-day -day life of people that are working in agricultural mm -hmm. spaces. And it wasn't until I met my future husband that mm -hmm. I really became interested. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm hopeful that my understanding as sort of an outsider who became an insider yeah. and maybe you know, I'm always a little bit on the outside as a result of that can be helpful. 
Mm-hmm. What you're alluding to when I frame it through the lens of you know much of our graduate education is it sounds like cultural competence. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, why, yeah, go ahead. Why we wanted to have this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't know that we necessarily talk about cultural competence within this, this, this idea or this setting. We often are, are thinking about, and importantly, other identities and yet the rural community and perhaps more specifically, farmers and ranchers are their own identities as well, and other communities more specifically. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, given that population, like what do you notice? Are, are there strengths and and challenges that they face? Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that those things are really intertwined. So some of the stereotypes that that we have about rural people, about farmers and ranchers mm-hmm. in particular, there's some truth to them. The old, mm-hmm. like, pull up your bootstraps and just kind of keep carrying on. Mm-hmm. This population has needed to do that, needs to mm-hmm. do that on a daily basis. You know, it, mm-hmm. there's a natural disaster outside that destroys your crop, destroys yeah. your, you know, your family's income. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have to figure out what to do about that. There's so many external forces that um, are are at play, and you know, usually generationally, people are are sort of staying in the same place, often in the same vocation. I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically in agricultural communities, and you know, you just keep carrying on, and that is mm-hmm. such a strength. You know, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to figure out what to do next. I'm going to ride mm-hmm. the lows and trust that a high is going to come. These same strengths can become vulnerabilities, I think, when mm-hmm. we're thinking about mental health. So mm-hmm. um, there's very much an ethos of, you know, don't complain. Just, you know, keep mm-hmm. trucking on, keep working. And it's really admirable and yet when the struggles are severe enough it may limit people from seeking help that could actually be really beneficial Mm -hmm. that mentality that you're speaking to over the years given my practice in the midwest i've had some occasions to work with people that are coming from more rural areas or telehealth in more rural areas and that wow does that resonate with what my clients have told me you know like it doesn't matter if I'm feeling upset about something, the cows still need to be tended to. I still need to take care of the crops. There is every single day. We don't get a day off every single day. There is something that needs to be maintained to maintain that lifestyle too. Right. right. If, if that individual sees it as a choice even, you know, so like, like to maintain that, it takes something every single day. And so even if I do feel awful, I've got to, like you say, I got to pick up, you know, I got to pick up and do this. And wow, like that is a strength as you, as I, as I hear that, as I hear you talk about it and I can see the vulnerability there too. Well, I think it just in, in living in this world, um, watching intergenerational patterns of, Mm -hmm. That work ethic is so important that it can become a bit of a, there, there's pride and then there's a bit of false pride. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm going to really watch my insider outsider status here. And I mm-hmm. may be misreading this, but I, this becomes something that um, it's like, 
if you could maybe take a break and you mm-hmm. need to take a break because you're overwhelmed or you're depressed or mm-hmm. whatever else is going on, or you, you know, maybe you need to go to seek mental or physical health care. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be seen as a weakness and not, mm-hmm. not just seeking care, but any amount of space. So there's a lot of pride that comes from being, you know, the first out into the fields, the hardest right. working, never taking a break. Um, and of course, those values are essential for surviving in a world mm-hmm. where, you know, historically over time, people are just trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. But it can become pretty rigid. Yeah. Lauren, I've got this feels like a dumb question, but this is this. I'm I'm definitely an outsider. When you say you're you're working on the inside or outside, I'm definitely an outsider. But now I'm thinking like, hey, so what if somebody really does need inpatient care? Yeah. Or, or a very significant outpatient program and like an intensive program. And yet they are the primary person yeah. responsible for taking care of that land. What, yeah. it, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, if I take a vacation day or if I leave my home, I need to make sure the door is locked. Basically, that's it. <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, I think, it, it would be very rare that someone of the of the people that I know sort of from my personal life as well as professionally working in this community for five to eight years at this point, mm-hmm. um, people just won't do it. They mm-hmm. e- even on a more basic level coming to one mental health visit, much less mm-hmm. the set of visits that might be recommended based on whatever's going on. It's really hard sell for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And again, it's this, it's so nuanced. Like, do they need to work? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot that has to be done um, and sort of a never ending to-do list? And again, I'm thinking more specifically of an agricultural family mm-hmm. as, as we're talking, but yeah. um, it is true that there's sort of a never ending amount of things that could be done or should be done. And taking that break yeah, uh, might be essential to the longevity of, you know, the, the efficiency or even, mm-hmm. even the person's life because rates of suicide in this population are exceedingly high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out how to maximize the benefit we can offer someone in a rural mm-hmm. setting, I think is really important owing to the the cultural values that, you know, are sort of like wanting a quick fix. Right. And also really legitimate limitations on accessibility, given Mm -hmm. a a huge shortage of mental health providers and psychologists and psychiatrists in particular, Mm -hmm. as well as um, how far many people have to go to even get any care. Right. Yeah. Like we were saying, I mean, whether it's, 45 minutes, an hour, hour plus. And then like you're saying, you know, the research I was reading in preparation for this episode saying 65% of rural counties don't have a psychiatrist. And then if you're thinking, okay, well, maybe they've got, you know, advanced practitioners, you know, nurses that have psychiatric training, Mm -hmm. 81% don't have psychiatric providers like that. So it's even worse in some, in some counties, in some areas. And so, wow, we've got this huge gap. I want to I want to talk about a couple pieces of what you're saying there Lauren this idea of to backtrack a little bit this insider outsider 
idea. Here you are, you've done some of your, your training, you've had some, well, I mean, my gosh, you were an investment banker on Wall Street. What a different world that must be. And, you know, so insider, outsider, I can appreciate what you're saying. And yet for listeners, for me, I'm, I'm curious what that might mean and how you've become more of an insider. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, so I married into a family that had been in the area, the Monticello, Iowa area, sort of Eastern Iowa, Southeastern Iowa. Um, it, so my now ex-husband is a sixth generation farmer. So his wow. family has been there forever. It's a, not a, big name, but, uh, you know, a well-known family in the area. They think, you know, good, hardworking people mm -hmm. that are respected as, as a result mm -hmm. of sort of how they've lived for a long time. So I got a lot of credibility as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, I, I, I pride myself, I hope appropriately in wanting to know more, wanting to do right. And so, mm -hmm. um, I did a bit of exploration and research and it, as I was trying to set things up, how am I going to build credibility? How am I going mm -hmm. to attract patients? And I reached out to a couple of other rural providers in the state. And it was funny. One of them is Dr. Mike Rossman. He's really mm -hmm. the expert on rural mental health care in our nation. And he, the first five minutes or so of the session, he kind of grilled me on, um, like what my husband's farm was like and what the, wow. you know, he just, so he was, he was chit chatting. I'm using air mm -hmm. quotes here, but he really was trying to see, can I walk the walk? Can I talk mm -hmm. the talk? Am I going to be able to be knowledgeable about life, yeah. about the lifestyle and the, the needs and the day-to-day -day living experiences of this population? Mm -hmm. And what that told me is that that's, that's essential. All mm -hmm. of our training is very important. Of course, we know that in terms of good mm -hmm. outcomes, but if you're not connecting culturally and you're not connecting on a personal level, mm -hmm. I don't know that much else we offer is going to be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So and then, yeah, go ahead. Um, I think that really just approaching things as I'm here to learn and the mm -hmm. same way we might approach any other cultural competency that I can be transparent about my desire to understand the person. Mm -hmm. And I think that matters or my limitations in understanding and inviting sure. them to share, inviting them to reflect on any um, concerns they have. Mm -hmm. I think it goes the other way too, because it is a small community and many of the people that I ultimately worked with um, knew me or my my family in mm -hmm. another capacity you have to manage multiple relationships a lot mm -hmm. oh, i bet well, I, you know even though i haven't asked you questions about it but what's going been going through my head is like gosh yeah you're in this small community that's gotta bring about ethical challenges or at least considerations along the way too yeah there you are as you illustrate it though what i'm hearing is like it's both immersion homework and humility that has yeah. kind of brought you to this place of like, okay, I'm, I'm insider and outsider at the same yeah. time. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. I um, really enjoy working with people that might otherwise not have access to such great mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
I, that might be a nice segue into us talking a little bit about how little psychological care is available in the vast majority of rural areas. So mm-hmm. where my practice is, there's not another psychologist for at least an hour in every direction. Wow. wow. So, and then the, there are a few pockets, you know, an hour away in Dubuque, an hour away in Cedar Rapids, mm-hmm. an hour away in Iowa city, which has, you know, a good chunk, but um, mm-hmm. there's a, a real limit. And so everyone is, is walking this line of, how much depth to provide. And I guess what I mean is like how much regular care, how many clients can you Mm -hmm. take um, in order to reach as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean as an individual provider working in that community, knowing that you're one of so few providers, does that mean you feel that like pressure to, to take on more than you would ordinarily or more than you feel like you know, if circumstances were different and you were in the city of Iowa City and there are yeah. more people yeah. to choose from, well, how does that impact individual providers, not just yourself, but others that are in the area? Well, I think so. I think that um, for myself, I would struggle. You add this other layer of complexity of um, you might know the person who's asking for help. So I'm thinking uh-huh. of this one in particular where someone I knew professionally from a rotary club, professional organization, Mm -hmm. um, and, and knew in a limited capacity so that this multiple relationship issue, I think would have been fine. But Mm -hmm. so she reaches out and, um, you know, her adult son is suicidal and Mm. there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, no one to refer to. And so trying to figure out how to be flexible, be available in ways that make sense while also knowing, Mm -hmm. of course, that, you know, I might be able to make time for a crisis situation, but what about the follow-up care? And of course, Mm -hmm. this is the same anywhere, but Mm -hmm. it feels more, um, more urgent, I I guess, Mm -hmm. when I literally cannot think of someone to refer to because the next person is an hour away and they're have a two month waiting list. Mm -hmm. And I know that from the last person I tried to refer. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's been really important to be really mindful of my own limits and boundaries Mm -hmm. and to seek consultation Mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Because I think it would be really easy to just take on a lot more work and, and and or find yourself in multiple relationship situations that are Mm -hmm. ideal. Yeah. Yeah. And Lauren, as you talk, I, the word alone keeps coming up like solo, even if it's not lonely, just like that, like you are there and you are a very independent provider in that moment. It makes me think about my internship and postdoc at the university of Wisconsin, Madison, where I was part of an integrated team of nurses, PAs, MDs, DOs, um, other psychologists, other mental health providers, administrative support staff, you name it. Everybody yeah. was there in this one floor of the building. And it was a highly integrated, like almost, almost primary care integrated yeah. health model. And here you are, you're talking about like, oh, it's it's an hour, maybe, and a two month wait, maybe to that other person. And and I'm wondering what it means for you all as providers in this community in terms of, 
hey, what if you notice someone that may really benefit from psychiatric care? What What's the next step even look like? Yeah. So I, I personally, when I was going to set up my practice, I reached out to all the local primary care providers and to establish a relationship with them. And, and mm-hmm. I would say, you know, it certainly wasn't the kind of collaboration that you're describing, but we were having communication back and forth mm-hmm. on a pretty regular basis and with more basic psychiatric needs. So mm-hmm. the rural providers, because of all these limitations that we're describing are pretty willing to prescribe, um, antidepressants, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and then we'll want to refer to a psychiatric provider thereafter. Mm-hmm. I will say that I, we can discuss this for, you know, the therapeutic side, but um, over the past few years after COVID, there has been more access to psychiatric care via telehealth. Mm-hmm. So I have been able to actually help my patients get quicker care because there is more access now and more distribution of the psychiatric care across the state. I think that there are similarities and differences in what we do and what psychiatrists do that make it a little harder for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So telehealth in some ways has helped at least as a adjunct, uh, an assistive kind of way even if maybe the psychiatric providers are a bit further away. Staying on the the telehealth concept, though, for a little bit, Lauren, I have this picture of me here. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. You know, I'm I'm kind of in a more metropolitan area. Yeah. It's not a huge city, but it's a city. And and here I am in the city and I'm, I'm picturing myself, let's say I had my license in Iowa, which I don't, but let's say I did. And and uh, a person or or people within the community, I'm thinking, oh, I, w- I really want to do good. I, I really yeah. want to help this community. And I can see based on hearing from Lauren, like there's a need here. So I want to telehealth in and help. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, it's it's tough because there is so much unmet need in Iowa. I can't really speak for other places, although I know that you know most rural spaces across the country need more care, and most mental health providers and other specialty healthcare providers across disciplines like to be in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So we we need more help, and mm-hmm. I think that the average person that I worked with would have no interest in. Uh-huh. Um, unless you got a lot of training and could also uh-huh. talk the talk and or you were affiliated with someone that was located, um, you know, locally. Uh-huh. So I think that I would want you to learn about what's going on economically, learn about mm-hmm. what the day to day life is like for someone who is a, in a farm family. Mm-hmm learn about the, you know, the research that shows um, really high suicide rates in this population. Mm -hmm. And actually, that those rates are very tied to what's going on economically. Mm -hmm. So when you look at um, suicide rates in the general population, they're pretty Mm -hmm. stable over time. You compare that to a graph of suicide rates of farmers and ranchers, and there's these huge dips up and down that are clearly correlated Mm -hmm. with economic strife. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty alarming. 
And um, the more you understand, I think, about what life looks like for any population, any person you're working with, mm-hmm. the better you're going to be able to help them. Absolutely. Yeah. So there are some assumptions we might carry, some some assumptions we might carry about the community, but we need to do some work here. You know, we might say, okay, I I can I can make a difference here. I want to do that good. And that intention, I think, is good and positive. But our impact either might not be felt because people won't want to work with us, or we might do more harm in the process. You know, in some ways, what I'm hearing you say is like, there are some really important factors that can also contextually impact their mental health too and their well-being. You're talking about the economic components. Can you say more about what what that means in this context? Yeah, so most family farms have one or two um, sources of income. So they're going to have their crops and or their livestock. Maybe, maybe there's up to five. So, you know, the average Iowa farmer is going to have corn. They might have soybeans. They are going to have cattle and they, mm-hmm. they might have hogs or they might have mm-hmm. hogs and not cattle. But often mm-hmm. those are the four primary sources of income. Mm-hmm. So if there is a natural disaster and your crop is wiped out, mm-hmm. and there are, of course, some really wonderful federal programs that help with insurance and rebates and things like that but you are really tied to what happens in terms of the environment as well as just the macroeconomics so if corn Mm -hmm. prices are way down you're doing the same amount of work and you Mm -hmm. might get a fourth of the income you got two years ago wow some years are really high but Mm -hmm. um you you have very little control Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is really stressful yeah yeah, I can't imagine the pressure on families uh, that are going through something like that. And certainly, um, to speak of Iowa, there have been tornadoes, and there regularly are, and other natural disasters that have floods that have greatly impacted these communities. So, absolutely, it makes a lot of sense. You know, just to kind of laugh at myself for a second here, Lauren, as you were introducing like what they might be responsible for, you said hogs and cattle, which is probably very much like insider language, but like the outsider in me is like cows and pigs, right? And so like, oh my gosh, if I'm using this sort of like outsider language, just as a small little example, I feel like such a city slicker. You know, I'm I'm talking about what does it mean when it gets to the grocery store? What What am I picking up at the grocery store? Yeah. You're, you're so right. That nuance. And of course, this is true of any culture, any mm-hmm. group. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that that people are going to expect you to know any everything. And if, mm-hmm. I, I think this is where even when I got myself started, I situated myself in a way that I'm willing to learn that I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a newbie here. Um, and everybody sort of knew that about me. Mm-hmm. Um, because of how much everyone knows everything in small towns. Sure. But I, I think that the credibility really matters. And, mm-hmm. you know, cows are very different than most of what you're eating. So cows mm-hmm. are the ones that have that are bred to have babies year after year after year. And mm-hmm. um, most farmers are gonna, yeah, they might just chuckle, or they mm-hmm. might really think I'm not talking to this guy. Yeah. And, and that really might be a perception that's worth us spending a minute on. I think mm-hmm. that um, 
there is absolutely a general stigma on mental health care in particular mm-hmm. in this community. And I, so in term in the farming community, but in small towns in general, I think there's mm-hmm. a sense that um, they're not useful, that it's mm-hmm. sort of, I don't know, frou-frou or witchcraft mm-hmm. or something. And so it it's tough to find the mark of being credible, being knowledgeable in ways that might help people immediately and practically. So I'm thinking of some of the literature done by Kirk Strosel with primary care mental health integration, Mm. where, you know, the modal number of sessions that someone is going to go to a mental health care provider is one. Right. So what happens in that first session Mm -hmm. is really important. And, And I think bringing our conversation together, thinking about how do I meet someone as a human a little Mm -hmm. bit more than um, thinking about doing your standard clinical or psychiatric evaluation is really Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. You know, that first five minutes, if you're not connecting, if they don't think you're going to be useful, and Mm -hmm. if you don't send them off with some practical suggestions that actually tie to their lifestyle, Mm -hmm. they're probably not coming back. Mm -hmm. Lauren, before we've started the recording we were talking about and even in preparation for this episode talking a little bit about trauma and i'm just thinking about like stigma untreated or inaccessible care and and you know feeling like is this even going to help me you know even if it's not stigma per se but i'm like i'm not sure if it's going to even help like wow that sounds like a really challenging barrier to overcome Yeah, I think it is. And of course, we see this in other general populations as well, that people want something that they they want to feel better. Mm -hmm. And so we as psychologists know that so much is deeply embedded, whether it's trauma, Mm -hmm. whether it's genetic history, whether it like change is hard. Behavioral change is hard. Oh, yeah. And it it is something that I struggle with personally in my practice is how to help people to the degree they are willing to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess what I mean by that is some people want, they want to feel a little better as soon as possible. Others are willing to dive in and do more work. Mm -hmm. And then we think about the supply and demand issue about psychological care generally. Like, how can we give people the most bang for their buck? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a tough balance. I mean, regardless of the the location, I know we've had conversations like that here in Madison, too, and at the university and in organizations that support and hospital settings. Like, how do we balance that? Like, a huge need, limited supply. And what's going to be effective for a certain period of time too, um, even when they're in the door. Yeah. 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 And so that be to answer your question a little bit more directly, I think more directive rather than less directive Mm -hmm. at the start um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, more homework, more practical Mm -hmm. suggestions, those sorts of things tend to work better. Mm -hmm. Um. And just really checking in and being attuned. Are, are people buying in? And if not, mm-hmm. how can we get their buy-in? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about just some of the more generic things that are we know are really important. Like mm-hmm. 
even the term self-care, like there, mm-hmm. there's going to be this, like, you know, I don't need to take care of myself or, yeah. I, um, and, and when would I, and how could I? And so mm-hmm. it finding language, I think that works mm-hmm. and, and also recognizing that some people just aren't going to do the work because it doesn't make sense to them. Mm-hmm. You to shift gears a little bit, as we kind of wrap up our time to together today, you started, I believe, Prairie Home Wellness and Counseling, mm-hmm. right? Like this is your your company, your organization. Yes. And when did you start it? Just for reference point. Yeah. So it's been about five and a half years. Okay. And, so and, about, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I mean, part of the reason I started it is related to the lifestyle stuff. So I was married mm-hmm. to a farmer. He had really mm-hmm. long hours. We lived almost an hour, about 45 minutes away from the nearest metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was doing a a lot of the domestic work because Mm -hmm. that's, that's what happens in, in most farm families. There's, Mm -hmm. that's one thing that, you know, we can talk about a little maybe, but there's a lot of gender role differences as compared to a more urban population. Mm -hmm. So that's something for, um, you know, practitioners to really understand. But Mm -hmm. I, was commuting 45 minutes to work and seeing a lot of rural people in my group, the group practice that I was at and decided when we were having our second child that I needed to do something that made that, that allowed me to be available for the domestic responsibilities. That was important. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, And so I opened up my practice and um, considered hope to attract another psychologist. And that was difficult in a small Mm -hmm. area. Um, but ha- now have a couple of really great master's level clinicians that I have, have helped train and continue to oversee and have consultation with, which helps meet the need to some mm-hmm. degree and also gives me some support and community in doing this work. Well, to that point, and it sounds like five and a half years ago, you're starting to build something that, that's actually going to be helpful for you too, and, and sort of your work-life balance as well. And over time, you've been able to build this into multiple providers and uh, I think a couple of different cities that you're kind of housed out of. And Lauren, it's making me think like what makes a good candidate for your organization? Like if somebody wants a job there, what's going to make them stand out to you? It's a good question. I really aspire to attuned care, I guess, is the Mm -hmm. best way I can describe it. I think that there are so many interventions and empirically supported treatments that, Mm -hmm. that work. And yet at the base, I just, I want to connect. And I think that that's what clients want more than anything. So that's what I have looked for in Mm -hmm. um, people that I might hire is people that are wanting to care about the client. I know that mm-hmm. sounds sort of basic, I but I I think that plus good training mm-hmm. yields really good outcomes. And mm-hmm. for me, because there is this divide with the people that I have working with me currently between, like I'm the only psychologist and then there's a handful okay. of master's level providers. Um, I think a willingness to learn is really mm-hmm. critical for me. Mm-hmm. So they don't have as much formal training if they're coming out of a master's program are you dedicated to continuing education and learning and being the best you possibly can be 
Mm -hmm. I have been really fortunate to attract a handful of master's level providers that I think are providing excellent care. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And yeah, I'd love to see uh, your practice grow and the organization grow. So I'm I'm thrilled to hear it. And uh, yeah, I hope that we can continue to grow that practice over time too, because it's neat to see what you're doing out there. And yeah, Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us all today. And if people want to know more about you or uh, the, the counseling practice that you have out there, where should they go? Yeah. So I have a website, www.prairiehomewellness.com and you can learn more there and reach out. I'd love to connect if there's other rural psychologists. Mm-hmm. I, at one point, CMU had asked about, you know, sort of being, being alone. And yeah. during the COVID years, I did set up a virtual consultation group with a few other um, rural psychologists across the state. Mm-hmm. We have since sort of disbanded as other things have come up, but I would love to be connected with others um, and or offer any insights I can. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as clinical advice or continuing education.